Hey y'all, uh, welcome at a short scripture passage tonight, uh, which is good, I think, for um, a time like this in the school year. But uh, if you don't know me, my name is Simon Stokes. I'm the campus minister here. Uh, and if I haven't met you, if I don't know you, I would love to meet you and get to know you on some level um, here in the next couple of weeks before we head out for the summer. Uh, you may be asking yourself, what does RUF mean? Like, why do they have this weird name for themselves and it's not uh, something that's related vaguely to nature? Um, but it's not too Christian-y, <laughs> but it's RUF. Uh, I won't go into all the details now, but we call ourselves RUF Reformed University Fellowship. Um, and the word fellowship is in there because we believe that part of people's problem, the chief part of people's problem, is a relational problem. That people are, by nature, cut off from God. And that to have real relationships, to know real healing, and to be healed of the sin and the brokenness in our lives, we actually have to be healed in relationship with the Lord and healed in relationship with one another. So we're a fellowship, or a group of people that's centered on Jesus. So if you haven't been here before, I just want to say that to you as we get started. That's a little bit about what we are. Um, and so welcome. Welcome this is your first time, um, or welcome if I haven't met you yet before. So I'll dive in right here. Uh, kind of just laying the cards on the table. I heard this sermon illustration recently, but it fits so well with the sermon, I had to use it um, and I watched this video myself too, so it's a little bit different. But uh, there's a TED Talk that came out recently. Um, I don't know if you are familiar with TED at all, Technology, Entertainment, and Design. It's, uh, <laughs> that's right. It was here recently on Bodies or something, I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a great program. Uh, basically, someone comes and they talk about one of those three things and explain how it's impacting or what it's doing on the kind of cutting edge of things. And I saw one recently called The Gospel of Doubt, uh, where the man who was talking was explaining how he went through one series of things that he'd had faith in, letting him down after another. He talks about how when he was younger, he was part of this charismatic church that believed that Jesus was coming back uh, in the year 2000, right around the turn of the millennium, and uh, the deep disappointment they felt when it didn't happen. He talked about how he got into an Ivy League. He was hoping to get some answers there about his life, about who he was, and he just left that disappointed. He talked about uh, getting an internship on Wall Street with the Lehman Brothers and seeing an email home to his family saying, we're never going to be poor again. But it was the year 2008 when the financial collapse happened. And if you know anything about the Lehman Brothers, they crumpled like a wet paper bag in the midst of that. I mean, just deep disappointment in that. He got into the presidential campaign that year. He was hoping that politics would solve his problems. Was deeply disappointed when even though he's following a guy as gifted and as talented as Barack Obama, that this guy couldn't fix all the problems that he saw. He left the corporate and political world and started his own nonprofit. But then when he saw how big the task was there, and it, it just the things that they were doing were just not going to be enough to solve the deep system, systemic problems that were going on, he actually used this TED Talk to announce the dissolution of the nonprofit that he'd started. I mean, just like he's someone who's just been through the ringer on some really big things that he's had faith in. Like the religion he grew up with, his job, his politics, his sense of social justice, his sense of purpose in the world. And he starts to land the plane on his talk by saying that the only thing he has left to believe in is doubt. What's he getting at? That no matter what you're going to believe in something, there's going to be some ultimate thing that will guide you forward in life, provide you a picture of what life is supposed to look like. But if doubt is the only thing you can trust, and then what is your faith in? It's in doubt, isn't it? Like your doubt is the thing guiding you forward. We all have to have faith in something. 
We all have to have something to guide us forward in life. Something to shape the way that we see ourselves, that we see the world. Where do people come from? Where are they going? What is right and wrong? What should I be doing with my life? This is, these are ultimate things that shape us. And faith in our culture is, generally, if I just believe enough, then I'll get what I want. But if I don't believe enough, then I probably am not going to get the thing that I wanted. And, you know, if I, if I thought that I believed enough and it still didn't happen, I probably just didn't believe as much as I thought I did. Like, we're at, for instance, we're in the season uh, for NCAA Cinderella Stories. And uh, this year, that's not us. We started out ranked number one, so hopefully Syracuse won't be an example of this for us. But uh, have you ever noticed in kind of tournament time, the little guy upsets kind of the big dog in there, kind of makes a run from the back and wins the game, and some reporter always shoves a mic in the guy's face and asks him how you won the big game. And generally, their answer is something along the lines of, well, you know, we just believed in ourselves, and we did it, right? Or, for some of you who are not sports fans, take a more sci-fi track. Um, Luke Skywalker in The Empire Strikes Back. He goes, that's right, <laughs> hard left turn. <laughs> Luke lands on Dagobah. Uh, <laughs> that's right. I know. I know. Some of you are cheering for both these illustrations. Um, <laughs> Luke lands on Dagobah. He's there to be trained by this Jedi master. He's somewhat disappointed when it's a three-foot-tall Muppet named Yoda. And <laughs> he's doing all this training exercises. He's, try- he's got some like powers with the Force or whatever. But his spaceship has sunk in the muck and the mire. And he's like trying to like force like it up with his mind or whatever it is that he's doing. Yoda sees him. He's frustrated. He kind of gives one of those little like Yoda puppet sighs, like, and <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, he gives one of those sighs, and he goes on this like kind of long tear about what the Force is and how it's like tying everything together and how awesome it is. And Luke is just like really frustrated. He just walks away in kind of this like teenage angsty huff. And uh, then Yoda to uh, like just kind of show him like, hey, I know what I'm talking about. He puts his hand out and he lifts the spaceship out of the muck and the mire. And Luke turns around and sees him and goes, I don't believe it. And Yoda just looks at him and says, that is why you failed. Right? And, like if only Luke had had more faith, right? Like, dummy. <laughs> A Muppet beat you. Uh, <laughs> For many of us, though, I think this is the way we think about faith. That faith is really this sort of kind of mental leap into the dark. And it's something that may very well make no sense, that once you've sort of accepted it, though, that you're sort of escorted into what real faith is, which is usually some sort of mountaintop experience or feeling of invulnerable certainty. Like, you know, I think thinking like this is what kind of makes us sometimes schizophrenic about Christianity. Because we approach the world as though there is our faith on our one hand, which is this sort of... uh, Mental leap, uh, RUF, church, those kinds of things. And then the, on the other hand is kind of our social life, our dating life, our career aspirations. You know, all this like really matters and we can touch and kind of control. But the thing is, you can't divorce what it means to be a thinking person from a believing person. And your thinking and your believing were never meant to be separate. To be honest, they can't be. Because what you believe will always guide what you think or how you think or what you see about the world or what you notice and pay attention about with your life. Are you starting to see why this is such a big deal? Like why faith is so connected to who we are and what we do? Tonight I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about what's a wrong way to think about faith. I want to talk about what's a right way to think about faith. I want to talk about what does faith get us. 
What's a wrong way to think about faith? What's a right way to think about faith? And what does faith get us? Let me uh, pray for us real quick and we'll jump into this. Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. God, you know the state of our hearts. You know uh, where our faith is and what it lies and how much it lies in ourselves and how much it lies in you or in something else. Um, Lord, please help us discern our hearts tonight. Show us and be kind to us. Help us to be honest with ourselves. And then, Lord, show us the grace and the truth of your son, Jesus, who he is and how good and powerful he is as an object of our faith. In his name we pray. Amen. So look at verse 1 here. Look at verse 1 here. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You know, the Greek word for assurance is the same as knowing or understanding. It has to do with the mind, with reasoning. The writer is saying that by faith, we conclude with evidence. We have assurance because of faith. The order here, y'all, is everything. That by faith, we understand there was a missiologist uh, who lived about 20 years ago. There's a guy who studies missions. He had lived in India for like 50 years. He retired, came back to the, United, came back to the UK, and uh, wrote a lot of books um, about mission. And they've been really helpful. His name is Leslie Newbegin, if you want to look him up at any point. But he says this about the relationship between faith and understanding. He says, there are not two separate avenues to understanding. One marked knowledge, and the other marked faith. No, there's no knowing without believing. And believing is the way to knowing. The quest for certainty through universal doubt is a blind alley. The program of universal doubt, the proposal that every belief should be doubted until it can be validated by evidence and arguments not open to doubt, can in the end only lead, as it has led, to universal skepticism and nihilism. You know, one of my favorite questions to ask first-year students is this, is how has your faith changed since you got to college? How has your faith changed since you got to college? And nine times out of ten... The answer is, well, I've had to own my faith. I've had to make faith my own. And this is such, I think, such an important thing for us because some of you struggle in tremendous ways with faith because your faith has never really been yours. Especially when you come to college, you feel this, don't you? Like, no one is making you get out, get out of bed on Sundays to go to church. No one is making you have Christian community. No one is watching over you on what you can and can't do. Suddenly there's all this freedom. And now, like, am I or am I not going to follow this stuff? In many ways, for some of you, your faith has been your parents' faith, or maybe your grandparents, or a youth minister in high school, or a group of friends who believe together, but it's never yours. It's never something that you thought of consciously and said, I know there's other options out there, but I believe in Jesus. And for some of you, you came to UNC and you met people who were nice, but not Christians, and it rocked you. Why? Because you'd grown up thinking only Christians could be nice and care about the poor and, you know, be relevant good people but you got here and there's a ton of those kinds of people who aren't christians and it was like a smack in the face as though you know god's will for us is just to be nice relevant uh people who care for the poor like there's more to this than that right so some of you took the stance of i'm doubting and eventually it became doubt for doubt's sake that if i remain doubting then i don't have to disagree with my friends who hold a different worldview or different faith that we can be nice people together and not have to ruffle any feathers by kind of saying the equivalent of, you know, I love you, but no. For others of you, doubt became a sort of intellectual pride. That smart people are cynical and always seeing through things. And dang it, I want to be smart too. But I think that Hebrews here would disagree with you. That it would say, I think, if I'm reading this right, that smart people are smart enough to ask good questions. 
and to seek out good guides and to move in a direction where they find more and more good answers. That they're looking to travel a path of truth with the expectation that one day they will arrive at some final destination where they know more than they ever dreamed of to ask in the first place. And y'all, this isn't just Christians, this is everybody. Think about what scientists do. Think about what scientists do. Einstein, the science guy of the 20th century, pretty smart dude, said uh, this in a book that he wrote. He said, The supreme task of the physicist is to search for those highly universal laws from which a picture of the world can be obtained. Right? Like, I want to know reality. And then he goes on. There's no logical path leading to these laws. Like, what about, like, rationality? He's saying there's no logical path leading to these laws. This is Einstein talking. They are only to be reached by intuition based upon something like intellectual love. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Einstein is saying he's into intuiting is that the verb intuiting the way that the universe works and then moving towards those things to see if this is the way that reality works he makes a hypothesis i think the world is like this and he steps out in faith that the world was like that and then he discovers whether he was right or not and if he's not he changes direction do you see how that journey of knowledge has to be guided by faith that there are these small mini-destinations that answer some of those questions and then move you on further towards the path of that big discovery. I have a hypothesis. I test against reality. If I'm right, I move further. If it's wrong, then I pick another hypothesis and I head down a different path. Not all paths lead to the same place. Y'all, this is the way that everyone operates. This is the way that it is to have knowledge and to be a thinking person in the world. Living in a world that just... Suppressed by doubt and cynicism is not a way, kind of a high road from faith to certainty. It's just another way of faith. Because then your doubt or your cynicism becomes the thing that guides you through life, right? As C.S. Lewis so aptly put it, if you see through everything, then you've not seen to the heart of the world. But in seeing through everything, you've actually seen nothing at all. Everything becomes invisible to you. This sort of skepticism doesn't have to have a very sciencey feel to it either, I don't think, especially not in a state that probably claims Asheville. Um, consider the example of the person who's just kind of the, the humble sort of seeker who's trying to make their way in life. That there can be kind of an admirable air of humility about the statement that truth is just so much greater or so much bigger than any one person or one tradition or group can grasp. That the statement, you know, I think on some level is true, that nobody has... All the truth, if God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, like I can't contain all that knowledge, right? He's an infinite God. That would require an infinite amount of things to hold, um, or knowledge to hold about him. I don't, I'm not that kind of person. I'm not an infinite person. But there has to be some affirmation of truth in this, right? That we, a lot of times we can use this, oh, this is too big to, to contain everything, as a way to neutralize any claims on truth. And I had a really interesting encounter with this uh, not long ago. Uh, someone invited me. I can't remember who it was. I think they may be here. But someone invited me to Bart Ehrman's last lecture of the semester. Have you ever been to that? Where he like opens up to anybody. He said that youth, uh, youth ministers could come. So I kind of like weaseled my way in. Um, I didn't talk. I just was there to listen and kind of see what he had to say. Because uh, he has such a large presence on this campus. And he is a really smart guy, and I do respect him in a lot of ways, but I really do disagree with him on some really fundamental things. But it's this last lecture, he talks about his faith journey, and at the end of it, he kind of opens up the class to questions. And 
in the back of the room, someone raised their hand to kind of challenge him and say, you know, you say you don't believe in truth, but isn't that a claim to truth? Like trying to trap him there, right? Like you say there's no truth, you're making a claim on truth in that. Like, haha, gotcha. Uh, but I thought that Aaron's response in this was kind of good. I think that he was right. He said that I'm not saying I don't believe in any truth. I'm just saying I don't have access to the truth. He's saying that truth is in some sort of ethereal kind of realm. It exists, sure, but the problem is that nobody has access to it. So we can't really say what is or what isn't true. Do you kind of catch the false air of humility there? Like, I'm a professor who's been pounding a very specific take on Christianity and its sources down your throat for the last four months, but, you know, who am I to know, right? <laughs> Here's where I think where that he's right. He's right to say that nobody has full access to the truth of reality as they don't need any sort of faith. Christians, I think, should agree with this sort of humility. But where we differ from airmen is that when we're making a claim for truth, we don't claim to have full access to the truth of reality and the certainty that comes with it. What we claim is that we know the one who does. You get that? That we know the one who does have that access. In John fourteen six, Jesus says that I am the way and the truth and the life No one comes to the Father. No one comes to the source, the thought of all reality, of all truth, of all knowledge, apart from me. That by stepping into the Christian tradition and letting the story of the Bible guide us, we're stepping onto the path of truly knowing God, ourselves, and our neighbors. We don't claim to know everything, but we do claim to be on the path to truly knowing, inviting our friends and neighbors who don't yet believe to step on that path with us. Better than the question of how will I know is, Who will I listen to? Who or whose voices will guide me in knowing myself and God and the world? Because the question isn't, do you have faith? If you've got a pulse and you've got faith in something or someone, the real issue is, in what do you have faith? In what do you have faith? You see, the worldview that we have faith in, whatever it is, whether it's extreme skepticism, agnosticism, some of the religion, Christianity, whatever, it's like this tool that we're using to explore the world. We're like scientists poking at the reality around us and saying, is this the way things are or is there some other way? And we take this faith and we use it to encounter a problem or an event or a person and we use it to try to make sense of that thing. That we hit a snag, we know that we either need to get better with our tools or discard that and find a new one. That's what we call converting. When you throw your old tools away, you pick up new tools, right? This isn't something we focus that much on though. We're not generally thinking, you know, what does my worldview say about this? We're appealing to common sense, just the way that things are. In this sense, I think it's helpful to think about faith like this. That faith is like a pair of glasses that you put on. It's not something that you look at, it's something that you look through. That our faith is similar to this. The language you use, the images we think in, the concepts of how we do or act or see, all God is in how we live in the world. In the same way that the lenses of glasses almost become a part of our eyes, so our faith acts for us to help us see and know and understand. The Bible is a very similar thing, that it acts like a set of spectacles that we put on and say, is this the way that the world is? Did God make this? Is this broken? Do I feel that brokenness in me and in my life? And is he putting the world back together through Jesus? For some of you, the questions of those are yes. For others, it's no or undecided. Regardless, the offer of the Bible is giving you is to see your life from the perspective that God has acted to reveal and affect His purpose for the world through Jesus. 
At least from the perspective of Christian faith, this is the presupposition of all valid and coherent thinking. That every faith, no matter what it is, and it will be in something in one sense, is subjective. It's mine. It's my take on reality. In another sense, it's objective. It has to be my faith. Just like it's my glasses, or my tool, or my hammer, or whatever. It's me using this thing to understand the world. Yet it's also objective in the sense of the world, people, plants, Instagram around me. I'm really wanting to connect with reality. So truth, if it's actual truth, can't be just depend upon my ability to reason or feel my way through this. I think this is why, for many of you, your experience of the Christian life can feel so compartmentalized. Because you're, you're sitting in RUF, or you're sitting in church, or you go home, you're wearing one set of glasses. And you're willing to look at some of those things through those glasses. But when you're out with friends, or you're engaging in a debate in class, or you're scrolling through your Facebook feed, you're looking through a totally different worldview. But what Christianity is saying is there really is only one set of glasses. And you can't take those off when it's inconvenient. We can't say, I want to see through a biblical view of social justice and human flourishing. I like what God has to say about that. But when it comes to a biblical view of my own sexuality or my own desires or the way that I approach work and when I should work and when I should slow down and rest and be a person, you know, I don't think so. I refuse to look at that. You know, one cannot just wear one pair of glasses here and another one when I'm with my unbelieving friends. That's just trading one faith for another when it becomes convenient for us. Does that make sense? That Christianity isn't just my personal opinion, but it's like gravity. It's like this thing that's always there, that if it's truth, then it's true for everyone. Therefore, it has to be open to public debate and scrutiny by all tribes, tongues, nations, races, because it's for everyone. That's why everybody's invited to RUF, because we believe the gospel should be considered and discussed by everyone. So I stand here and teach and commend the Bible to you week after week because my hope is that through God's work in your life, it will come to be seen by you as truth that makes sense of yourself that you can live by. It's not some leap into the dark unknown, but a step forward on the path to knowing God and yourself and finally dealing with the hope and the brokenness of a fallen world through Jesus. This is going to blow some of your minds But this is why becoming a Christian for many people is not this intense overnight conversion experience, but it's a long, slow, steady process where you might wake up one day after lots of conversations and small decisions made a long journey and look back and say, huh, well, I guess I'm a Christian. When I started this, I would not have expected it. But here I am, and, you know, looking back, it makes total sense. For some of you tonight, it could very well be a step in that direction. I hope it is. I really do for you. Look, um, in the Bible, in the spectacles that God's asking us to put on, God's told us how he thinks about the world. He's telling us to put on the story and consider it, and either put it on or don't put it on, but the choice that you make about that story is yours. I think the Easter story is a perfect example of this. The contemporary people look at the resurrection of Jesus and say, you know, it's a hallucination, or he's talking in spiritual terms. That Jesus, when we say that he's resurrected, he's alive with us even though his body's buried because, you know, we love him and he's in our hearts. But people back then didn't think of it in this way. That these people had categories for dead people. They, just like us, didn't think that dead people just get up and go. 
Jesus has been telling them for the whole of the gospel, you know, I'm going to rise after I'm killed, and you're going to see it. And they're just like, they have no categories for it. And yet, this is the thing that God is calling us into, and he's calling them to believe in. And so I want to end with this. I want to end with this for y'all, because this is so, so Eastery. I just have to talk about it. Um, John chapter 20, which, by the way, if you're ever thinking of reading the Bible with someone who's not a Christian, why not start in John chapter 20? Like, John tells you why he's writing this book, and he starts off by telling you a story about someone who's doubting. So it's a, it's a great place um, to start reading a book with someone who doesn't know Jesus. But it happens right after Jesus has been crucified. All the disciples have left Jesus. They've left him. They quit, their, they quit being disciples. They've gone into hiding. They're afraid of what the authorities are going to do to them. Jesus shows up to them while Thomas is gone. I don't know what he's doing. He's off on like a falafel run or something like that, but he's just gone. <laughs> They're hanging out scared though. And Jesus shows up and he eats with them, he talks with them, they get to touch him and see him, and they're like, whoa, this is crazy, like, amazing, we didn't know you were going to do this. And Jesus is like, I told you I was going to do this like a hundred times, like, come on. (laughs) But Thomas comes back after Jesus has kind of gone to wherever he's doing, and the disciples are like, dude, you missed Jesus, he was here hanging out with us, it was incredible. And Thomas just looks at him and says, I don't think so. Like, dead people do not get up. They don't rise. We've talked about this already. Jesus is dead. You need to get over this. And they're like, no, no, no. This really happened for real. And Thomas says, well, unless he comes back here and I can touch the wounds that were in his hands, I can put my hand in his side where they drove a spear through him, like, I'm not going to believe. Like, he sets the bar pretty high, right? A few days later, he's hanging out. They're still scared. They're kind of all huddled together. Jesus shows up again. He meets Thomas in his unbelief, and he says, Thomas, look at my hands. Feel my hands. And Thomas puts his hands into Jesus' hands and feels the nails where they were and sees the scars. He puts his hand into his side where the spear drove through him, and he just exclaims, my Lord and my God. Can you imagine that kind of experience? Like, whoa, that's a quick turnaround, right? (laughs) It's crazy. It's amazing. And yet Jesus approaches him in his unbelief, and he says, you know, I love you, here I am. And Thomas is just in shock, and Jesus says, but blessed are those who've not seen and yet who believe. Blessed are you, is what he's saying. That if you don't see Jesus, if you weren't there when he rose from the dead, and yet you still believe, because what you've done is you followed the evidence. The Easter stories, you've lived in the community of God's people, you consider the things of Jesus, and you stepped out and with a hypothesis that says, is this the way we are? I'll try. Y'all, our faith, like Thomas's faith, is just shot through with holes. We're a mixed bag, everybody is, Christian or non-Christian, of belief and unbelief. But the lesson that we have from Thomas is that it's not the quality of our faith, it's not the quantity of our faith, but it's the object of our faith. It's Jesus on the cross for you. Beloved, what does faith get us? Faith gets us the blessing of knowing the God who made the world and redeems us through His Son. Y'all, you can wrestle with doubt, you can wrestle with uncertainty, but if your faith is in Jesus, it's not you who are holding on to Him. It's Him who's holding on to you, who's approaching you. This is why faith in Christ is rest and healing and joy. It's our prayer for you that you would know that now. As always, that's my invitation to you. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you give us your son, Jesus. 
Thank you that you give us the Easter story, um, Lord, that you love us, that you die for us. Uh, God, that the tomb is not there with a body in it, but the tomb is empty. That your Son lives and intercedes for us before you. Lord, I pray that you would work that faith into our hearts and into our lives. I pray that you would guide us into all truth. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.